Hi, it's Magali. I wanted to thank you so much for listening to Product Perspectives. The audience is growing every week and it's my pleasure to bring you new episodes with great content. I'd love to have your feedback about the format, the quality, the types of guests and anything else you want to share with me. I've put the link to a survey in the podcast note, so please, please take two minutes to fill it in. As a product manager, you know how important feedback is. And if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends, colleagues, network, and give it a five-star rating and review on your podcast platform. Thank you. My name is Tess Dixon, Design Ops Leader. My guest today is Tess Dixon. With 20 years of experience in tech, including a past life as Director of Support at Tumblr, Tess pivoted to design in 2019 and spent the last couple of years learning about and practicing design ops, most recently as Director of Design at Condena. She loves documentation, remote-first culture, getting things organized, and supporting an entire team with the best environment possible. I had a long conversation with Tess, and for that reason, there are two episodes with her. In the first one, we focused on her background and role as Director of Support at Tumblr. Tess talked about how product managers can work closely with support teams to understand user reactions to new features, how she introduced self-service support solutions to reduce support tickets, and how support teams can drive customer satisfaction and sales opportunities. If you missed it, it's not too late to listen to it. In today's episode, we talk about her role as Director of Design at Condé Nast. Whether you have an ops team or not, every organization needs operations to run. So you or some of your colleagues are probably doing ops already. We've also diverged onto remote working because Tess is a strong advocate and she gives us tips about how to make it work, as well as reasons why it is more inclusive. A very enjoyable episode. Welcome to Product Perspectives, the podcast for product people that gives a voice to their stakeholders, hosted by Magali Pellissier. Each weekly episode shows you the other side of the product with interviews of the people who contribute to making products a success. They are engineers, writers, marketers, support analysts, UX designers, or even salespeople. Not only will they get the credit they deserve, but they will share their perspectives on what makes a good product and product manager. Stakeholder management is a key skill for product managers. So just as you're obsessed with listening to your customers, let's hear from your stakeholders. Now we're going to move on to your most recent role, which was Director of Design Operations at Condé Nast. Can you tell me more about what that means? What's the scope? I led design ops for the digital product design team. So the team that's responsible for the apps and websites of iconic brands, you know, like Vogue and Glamour and The New Yorker, Bon Appetit, Wired, and lots more. Um, so, you know, the first thing I did when I came in was my, my boss had kind of said, you know, I've, I've just hired up and now I'm realizing that I'm the only person here to lead the design strategy and also to have one-on-ones with everyone and talk to them about their careers and run all of our team rituals every week. And, you know, 
she was kind of, I think, overwhelmed having, okay, now I've got all of these new team members and I have to actually enrich them and do all, all of the regular maintenance that employees need. And so I was really focused on helping with that side of things. So I did sort of listening tour to get started, which I highly, highly recommend to anybody who's starting out in a new leadership role. Um, because I don't know, I think people are kind of nervous, right? They're meeting this new person who's coming in. They're wondering, oh, what is this person's relationship to me? How, how much of a wrench is this person going to throw into my daily activities? You know, all these things. But I mean, if you immediately come in and you start a listening tour and you go to each person and say, Hey, I'm, I'm just here to support you. I'm here to like move obstacles from your path. You know, what's something I could do today that's really simple to help your daily life? And that's where I got my marching orders for, you know, like the first year of working there. And at first it was a lot of very simple things like, you know, everybody really wanted to be doing, uh, you know, weekly team meetings and everybody really wanted to be sharing in progress work regularly with each other you know, going over each other's designs and giving each other critical feedback, all all these types of rituals, regular rituals. But it wasn't really anybody's job to run those rituals or to make sure that they happened. So I think because people were busy with their projects, a lot of times these things just didn't happen. And, you know, I was kind of like the person who showed up to make those things happen. And you know, set up a structure around them. I I think of doing ops work as not necessarily raising your hand and saying, I'm going to do this task 100% of the time. You know, I'm, I'm going to run the work in progress session every single week or anything like that. But what you're doing is you're setting up a procedure and a structure so that anyone can run the work in progress session every week so that you know, as your team grows, maybe you need to split off into several work in progress sessions so you don't lose the like sort of small group intimate feel of it. And that each of those people has like this really simple to follow procedure so they can lead their group's work in progress session. So, you know, that's just an example of, of something. But yeah, I think uh, a lot of what I was doing there involved kind of stabilizing as well. So, I mean, at a media company, things move pretty fast, as Ferris Bueller would say. And, you know, there are always changes coming down the pipe, whether it was like reorgs upon reorgs, you know, whether there were new KPIs being rolled out, like all, all different kinds of things like that. And, you know, as an ops person who's like one of the people who is a central employee of the design team and not not an employee of any particular brand, you know, it's it's kind of your role to be a stabilizing presence and to make sure that every day the sun is still rising and setting. Right. And stability is something that I think people have needed over the last couple of years with COVID and people have had to work remotely. I believe you are a strong advocate for remote work. So to clarify, well, all the roles at Condé Nast remote and what did you do to facilitate the remote operation? This was pretty easy for me because, you know, when I started, I was recruited as a remote employee, and that wasn't really an earth-shattering thing. There were a number of other people 
on the design team who were fully remote. And by the time I left, gosh, we had people literally all over the world. But when the pandemic hit, some other teams that weren't quite as distributed as we were suddenly looked at us and said, oh, how how do we do this remote thing? How do we do this distributed work thing? So that was kind of a fun opportunity for me because I got to kind of sit down and write out some guidelines and say, okay, well, here are some of the best practices that I know of. Here's how we tend to run meetings. You know, here's how we do things. And I think influence the larger organization in that way. So for people who are more used to going to the office and for the companies right now that we are seeing going back to the office, what pieces of advice could you give? Like what have you seen that has worked and you recommend and things that haven't worked to facilitate the remote working? First of all, I think a lot of leaders feel very threatened by remote work. And I think a lot of businesses are going, quote unquote, back to the office, just I mean, out of fear, fear and real estate investments. Right. I mean, if we're just totally honest and And we're just saying exactly what it really is. That's it. So if your career is based on being the loudest person in the conference room, uh, if you are mostly successful because you have a very sparkly personality, you're very quick witted, you're very good at speaking up, you love to show off your corner office or whatever, then all of a sudden remote work comes to your company and you're like, oh, no. People are being evaluated by the actual work product that they're putting out. And people are not only being evaluated on how big of an extrovert they are. Yeah, I can see how you would feel threatened and afraid. But I don't think the solution to that is push everyone back in the office. I think it's time for their way of work to die. I also think that people kind of throw around a lot of opinions about remote work. But I have been working at least partly remotely since 2011. And, you know, working from inside your house during a pandemic is not remote work. Like, that's not what remote work is. And people who, not by their own choice, had to very suddenly shift to working from home and without the proper setup and not even being allowed to go out, that's much more of a crisis management method than it is real chosen remote work. And so I just encourage anybody who has judged remote work on their pandemic experience to, you know, to not say remote work when they're talking about, oh, like, well, I I found that it's not for me or I really hated working remotely. What you hated was working from inside your house with three kids in the same room and sitting on the edge of your bed because you don't have a proper desk at home. That's what you hate. You don't hate like real remote work. Uh, that allows people to travel to Tuscany while they're working or meet their friends for lunch easily or whatever it is. And I also hear a lot about people saying, I just need lots of interaction. So I can't do that if I work remotely. And I just feel so sad for those people because what that tells me is that they depend on their work. Work is only one thing in your life. It's the thing that you do for money. Presumably, it's the thing you do so that you can do your actual life, but you're depending 
fully on that for your social interaction. I have my family and my friends to interact with in the real world. I totally agree about the inclusivity problem, like the fact that the world is built for extroverts, for example, and remote working gives a better chance for people who don't really fit that profile. I think of a comment about leaders being more used to really have that presence in the office, they're, they're lacking that. Do you think that because you've worked in roles that, let's be honest, are probably more suited towards remote working? For example, when you're a freelance work writer, you have more time to focus and to concentrate when you're alone in front of your computer. If you're doing design or working with designers, saying they need some time to think, to be creative. The same in support. Every support agent is in front of their laptop answering calls from customers or responding to individual tickets. So maybe you're a bit biased towards this. But on the other side, you were also a leader yourself, leading the design operations and leading the support. I want to say you have experienced both sides. So you don't think you're biased? Like, does this really apply to sales teams and other customer-facing teams who really need to talk? When people make arguments for things like, Oh, but, um, you know, we're not able to have these like serendipitous water cooler conversations. I just would love to see data on that. I think that those are mostly a myth. And I think that even in a place where people are all together in one office, like the serendipitous water cooler conversation, if it really happens more than once a year, it leaves people out of the conversation anyway. So if any conversation you're having where you feel inspired, you know, by serendipity, talking with somebody else socially, and you don't go back after that conversation and document those things in a place where everyone can access them and tell all the rest of the team about them and bring everybody else in, you're being very exclusionary. And I don't think it's something to praise or to seek after. I think it's something to crush. This is the most articulated way I've ever heard someone putting it because I think the same. and. These kind of things that people are saying, oh, we don't get the benefits of that. Actually, some people get the benefits, but some people end up being excluded because of that. So that's definitely not inclusive. And so thank you very much for voicing that. I hope it's going to make people think, the audience, (laughs) and I'm all for transparency as well, documenting it and putting it out there. Because if you had the idea or a conversation with one person, It is very likely, and that's the theme we've talked about during the whole episode, is that you need to bring other perspectives and socialize that idea with other people. And that is where you're going to get the best idea based on what you initially thought about. So great. Yeah, absolutely. And if companies are trying, uh, you know, remote work, I see so many things that are like, well, yeah, my company tried remote work. We did a thing where everybody can work from home one day a week. And so that was remote work and and it didn't work great or or it didn't matter or it didn't help or whatever. It's like, that's not remote work. Like, what what are you talking about? Like, it's it's just people trying to check a box off and say, like, yes, I tried this, but they actually didn't invest in it. And so there are a lot of workplaces that are just replicating the office while being remote. They are they want to replicate everything that an office does and do everything exactly the same way that offices do them and call that remote work. And that's not what a real transition is. A real transition is, you know, really reinventing how you work together. And and I think 
asynchronous communication and documentation over everything uh, is the way to make it work well. Brilliant. So I want to talk about another topic in which is a bit trendy in the product world. It's the rise of product operations. But it's very important to say you didn't work in product operations, you worked in design operations. And even though I've seen that function before, there's not so much momentum, at least in the product work. Maybe it's different in the design world. But some companies have really embarked into that journey to think, oh, we need product operations. But they may be left behind the design operations side. So what would you say to these companies? Why is it important? Well, that's a good question. I think it depends. This might seem like a betrayal of my industry, but I wouldn't necessarily jump to say you need to have design ops without knowing more about an individual company. You know, maybe you work at a small company where life is just not that complicated and you don't need somebody who's navigating full time through all the muck. But if you're part of a large matrixed organization where getting anything at all done can involve lots of different teams and all different locations can become very complicated, then you're kind of doing your team a disservice not to have design ops. But this is very similar to the remote work thing in that we don't have to convince people of this stuff. More and more companies are getting ops professionals. The fact is that all design teams do design ops, whether they realize it or not. You know, whether they have formalized it as a function or not, somebody is sitting there doing that operational work, setting those standards and procedures, you know, making sure that team rituals and team culture exist and, you know, being the main contact with HR and recruitment and making sure everybody does their security training, all that stuff. Somebody is doing that. So I I believe that ops work can be done better when it's acknowledged as its own separate field and when somebody is given the space and allowed to focus on that type of work. But, you know, otherwise it can push onto people as part of the sort of invisible work that they do alongside their design work, right? So, like, we all know this person at our company. You probably have a person like this on your product team and on your design team who, even if you don't have a formal ops function, like, they're basically the person who does it, and they just find ways to do it in between all their other work. And when you get to a certain amount of ops work needing to be done, like that's really unfair. Yeah. And that's a good point around the fact that it's not fair because studies have proven that most of the time it is minorities or people who identify as female who end up doing a lot of that invisible work and then they don't get rewarded for it. Instead, the big projects and the big products in that case are allocated to people who do the visible work and and that's not something that's taken into their performance review. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's something I struggle with a lot. And I've talked about this before in some of the talks I've given conferences. But, you know, on one hand, I am a mother and I, I people in college before I was a mother used to call me Mama Tess because they would look to me for all kinds of different things. And I like taking care of people and I'm good at taking care of people. So I want to like own that and embrace that part of me. I mean, there's nothing inherently negative about just being good at that part of life. But on the other hand, there shouldn't be any law written or unwritten that says, because I am a matronly mom-like person, like I need to be the mom of this entire work organization. Creating ops roles is one way to you know, prevent 
the work from falling on people in that haphazard way. Yeah, I love the fact that we have a chance to highlight that fact as well, because I think some people may not know about it. I think because we tend, I'm a bit like you, like super organized. So people who are really organized as well tend to do a lot of these things. So we notice, but it may be that some people in the audience have never even considered. So that's why it's important to highlight it. Absolutely. I like to have in the podcast a friendly pose. So I had someone you know, you've worked with, ask you a question. So let's listen. Hi, I'm Thomas, a former colleague of Tess's at Tumblr. Tess, my question for you is, how did your experience leading a customer support team at Tumblr translate into leading a team of designers, UX writers, and UX researchers in the design world? So, you know, at Part of leading a support team, and and this goes right back to what I was saying a minute ago, I was doing support ops work, although I think that was somewhat a new term in the industry and not something I really recognized. Uh, but I was, you know, setting the rituals and, you know, doing all of those kind of operational tasks to keep the team running behind the scenes while also, you know, leading the strategy for the team. So when I ported over into design ops land, so many of those skills were transferable. Like you said, being really organized, you know, being able to plan ahead for things, setting up like career frameworks, you know, running rituals and planning offsites and hiring and coming up with processes around hiring and all those types of things are all things that I had to do as a support leader that very much easily slotted in easily into the design ops world and, and, and would for product ops as well. But I think there are also some real affinities between support and design that I never really recognized before I started working on a design team. You know, I, I think support people sometimes think of themselves as these sort of like, yeah, we're working at the tech company with everybody else. We're not like engineers. We're not like product managers. Like we're not designers. We're not real. We're considered like the, you know, these sort of like somewhat disenfranchised kind of more of a cost center type thing. But support folks and design folks can sometimes view themselves as like the only entity in the room that's advocating for the user. And I heard so many people say things when I first started working in design that I was like, oh my gosh, this is like ripped from my old support meeting. Why can't the product and engineering people see this thing? Like, why are they doing this to just like bulldoze the user? And why aren't they considering this? And I mean, it was just, it's a very, very, very similar cause. I don't think it's always true either that support and design are the only people in the room advocating for the user. I I don't think that's true at all, but sometimes it feels that way. It just feels that way. And so, you know, having worked on design team and seen the real like empathy and compassion that people have for the user experience from the ground up, you know, I thought to myself, gosh, I really wish I had partnered more with the design team when I was a support leader because I rarely asked them for anything and I did not truly come alongside them and partner with them in ways that could have been uh, really cool. So that's something I learned and that is definitely like a similarity 
that made me feel very at home within design ops because like I came from a place where I was always advocating for the user. And I, I think designers are find themselves in the same exact position. As- yeah. And I think that's a very strong message that you send. And one of the reasons your career is so fascinating is you've had so many different roles and at each step of this journey, you've realized okay, now that makes sense and you can apply the learnings and work better with other people. I think we sometimes underestimate the value of those more lateral moves. In the product management world, we're thinking, okay, I'm a product manager, then a senior product manager, then I want to be a director and all of this. But having the opportunity to see what the other teams are doing to maybe do a secondment in the support team, or maybe it's just answering a few tickets and then working with the design team for a while but really working as part of them, not like we would for working on a product. I think there's so much value to get from that. Yes. You know, there are a lot of companies that do like regular rotations where people have to spend time sitting on a different team and going to that team's rituals and hearing that team's woes. <laughs> and I think that is an amazing way to get to know people across the organization, to build trust and to like figure out where you can be useful. Right. So something new in 2023, it is your turn to ask me a question. So what's your question? (laughs) My question is, what do you think is the key to maintaining a good relationship between product and design teams? This is something that I feel like, you know, it's a question that comes up everywhere all the time. Anytime you're talking about product. And I, so I'm just kind of curious about what your opinion is. You know, how do you make sure that that good relationship is intact between product and design? So that's a very interesting question. And I would say that's exactly why this podcast exists to be able to understand each other and figure out what's the best way to work together and to have that good relationship. I don't think there's any single answer to that because it really depends on the individuals. As much as I like to say, UX design, not all UX designers are the same, and it's the same for engineers, and you can have that stereotypical view of what an engineer is and how they like to work. But having talked to, in this example, UX designers, I had very different perspectives. So if I think of Pavela, we interviewed, she was a UX designer, but she was also in charge of the UX research. So talking to her as a product manager, I should realize that there is so much more she's responsible of than just the design itself. When I talked to Hayden, who expressed his frustration that product managers tend to think of the MVP as removing all the fluffy and the nice-to-have features, and he said, well, it can be a bit frustrating how PMs don't understand why we can't cut corners on all the nice UX features because, and I think coming back to our earlier discussions, that means the new feature is going to be hard to find for users or hard to use. And then, yes, that new feature is going to be released, but it's going to end up creating lots of support tickets because people can't figure out how to use it. I've talked to some product designers who were very into the empathy and really the personal relationship. So for them, that was the most important. I really got that impression from Phil. I would say my main message is just get to understand the person you're working with and get to understand the organization dynamic. Because one good example is if they don't have a design ops function, 
some people may be doing the design ops as an invisible work. So you need to understand all the dynamics and not make assumptions about what people are doing, what their objectives are. Yeah. And, you know, making that person feel heard, right? Because that goes so far in maintaining those relationships and ensures that you can have a good future relationship, you know, not just today, but because you made them feel heard, they're going to remember that forever. And it doesn't need to be in person. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Right. The final part of the interview where I ask you some fire questions. So I'm going to make several propositions to you and you choose one of them. And if you want to, you can elaborate. Right. The first one is B2B or B2C? B2C, just because that's what I'm more familiar with. Design operations or support? Both. That's a lot. That's okay. (laughs) I mean, I would have to tear my heart out, I think, to choose one of those things. I think they're equally important. Small or big company? I'm going to say big. I don't know why, but I I assume most people would say small uh, because there's something to the like fantasy of working on a small, close-knit team. But I have found that when you don't have the resources and the support and the comforts, frankly, of working in a big company, you miss those things. (laughs) So that's why my answer is big. Right. Freelance employee? Employee. I think freelancers work doubly hard for what they get (laughs) as employees do. Support through chat, email, or phone? Email. Asynchronous all the way. I love that. And finally, sabbatical or work? Sabbatical forever and ever. (laughs) You wish? (laughs) Yeah, I wish. I hope. (laughs) Right. So if we want to wrap up this interview and maybe give one takeaway for product managers who, just like you in a design operations role, you want to help UX designers and writers and researchers to maximize the time that these teams can devote to their craft. So what can a product manager do to support that? Oh, gosh. Okay, if I had to say one thing, I would say be transparent. Every minute that someone has to spend guessing about things, what are the team's priorities? What's the division of labor? Does this person like me or not? What are the deadlines, real or implied? Um, You know, how am I going to know when I've been successful? Like any minute that somebody spends guessing about those things is a waste of time. That is a wasted minute. And so the more you can do to clarify, clarify, clarify and over communicate and, you know, keep that Trello board or Jira board or whatever it is, like pristinely updated and make sure that everyone has all the same information available to them, you know, the better. Great. That's a great tip. I'm totally in line with that. So if people have enjoyed this conversation and they want to talk to you, can they contact you? Sure. I am on LinkedIn. There's not very many other Tess Dixons in the world, so you should be able to find me easily. And I am on Twitter, rarely, at Tess underscore Marie. Perfect. Thank you very much. I've really found this discussion super inspiring. I've learned so much because you've worked both in design operations and in product support. So that's been double insightful. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time during your sabbatical to share your story. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun. Thanks for letting me get on a soapbox. 
Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, or any feedback, you can write to Magali Pellissier at hotmail.fr.